Well hello and welcome to The Mariner, with me Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode we're continuing with the RYA Sea Survival Handbook, and we're finishing up Chapter 2, the discussion about entering cold water and uh, your chance of survival thereafter. So I'd just like to share with you that um, I had three people contact me um, after the last podcast, you know, with discussion about uh, cold water, and uh, two of them saying that they had uh, identified this problem of what to do when you go into cold water, this cold shock physiology that you just can't do anything about. You have to succumb to it if you have not already prepared yourself for it. Um, and they had uh, taken action um, to try and remediate the situation by taking cold showers. And that uh, within a week of doing it, they're able to much more easily and in a much more relaxed fashion deal with the cold water shower and felt that they were then in a much better position to deal with the possibility of going into cold water the third person wrote and said that they had the same uh, revelation I had that uh, you know this is a serious issue that uh, even just going into cold water for half an hour could represent a uh, extinction level event if you uh, had not prepared yourself beforehand so I don't know if it's something that crossed your mind if you didn't hear that uh, podcast we were talking about the fact that when you do go into very cold water there are things that happen to your body um, which can really reduce your chances of survival if you haven't already got to uh, you know, experience cold water and, and function in it. So the challenge is on. Uh, the cold shower challenge for the winter of 2022. Let's uh, see how that goes. Um, <clears throat> I'll, um, I'll start challenging myself a little bit uh, in, the, in the shower with the, uh, the cooler temperatures. I, something I, I absolutely hate. So uh, yeah, I guess I got to do something about it. Um, okay, so we continue on now with this uh, fantastic book by Keith Colwell. Um, it's standard uh, text for the RYA and uh, their take on all aspects of survival at sea. If you haven't seen it, easily available on Amazon. There's a link in the description of the podcast. And it goes from everything from the strategy of avoiding uh, an emergency, i.e. handling heavy weather, meteorology, you know, what to, to look for in your passage planning, right down to how to operate uh, uh, flare and communicate with aircraft that may be going overhead, that kind of thing. So from the macro to the micro and back again, uh, we're just talking here now about uh, methods for helping with the onset of hypothermia. Hypothermia, of course, below temperature, you've got an issue that you're getting too cold. It says before entering the water, don extra clothing. If you have one available, put on an immersion or survival suit or a dry suit. Now, we talked about those. If you don't want to fork out the potentially thousands of dollars or thousands of pounds, whatever it is, for a full brand new uh, thick immersion suit, you can often get them from the offshore safety industry where they've been used in oil rigs or fishing boats, that kind of thing. Um, often those companies will cut the feet out of them so they can't be used in a professional capacity again. But if you can kind of get in there and, uh, and express, you know, desire, I'm not using it commercially, I just want it on my boat just in case, I'm sure it's quite easy to get one relatively cheaply. Um, the most important thing is that you have some kind of waterproof top layer, um, which is going to, you know, hold out the water at best, or at least make it very, very difficult for the water to flow away from you once you've warmed it, that's going to help you have this um, bubble of warm water around you. It's, uh, you know, it's a small effect, but uh, it's there and it can help you um, to survive longer if you go into cold water. It says wear a thermal hat and cover your head with a fluorescent or brightly colored hood. This also makes you more visible to rescuers because 50% or more of heat, depending on the clothing being worn, is lost through the scalp. What a fantastic piece of advice. 50% of your heat going out through your head 
Uh, we know that when you're wet, you lose heat much, much more quickly. Uh, being damp, you know, just having water running through your hair, over your head, whilst you're floundering in the sea, it means that you're going to be losing heat even quicker from a part of your body which has just the biggest blood flow possible. It's a massive radiator for heat and it's one that you need to really shut down whilst you're struggling to produce enough heat to stay alive in cold water. So try and get your head covered, cover it from the wind, cover it from the water, just try and stop heat coming out of your head if you possibly can. Um, it says, uh, once in the water, do not kick off your boots. Uh, try to remain as still as possible and adopt the help position. Now, the boots thing is very interesting. As I've said, I've um, if you have to maneuver in the water at all, the boots are going to make it very, very hard. Um, they're going to kind of uh, weight you the bottom half of you down. It'll mostly be inertia because obviously the water inside the boots weighs as much as the water outside the boots, but the uh, it's not like they're dragging you down that way. It's just that you can't move your feet very quickly, and that's the basis of treading water. As we said, you can take the boots off and then scoop them down through the air into the surface of the water, thereby trapping water in sorry tra thereby trapping air inside them and pop them underneath your uh, shoulders, uh, underneath your armpits rather, and um, that's going to you know help give you a little bit more buoyancy, lift some more of your body out of the water. But if they are the bottom part of the waterproof uh, survival shell that's around you, i.e. you've got boots on and you've got salopettes and, uh, and um, uh, you know, a full jacket and everything else, it might be that uh, making sure that water is not flowing in and out the bottom of your uh, trouser legs is, is actually more important to your chance of survival than worrying about being pinned in an upright position with your life jacket at the surface and your boots down deep beneath you. So you'll have to make a judgment. And of course, where this is where training comes into play you know the the other thing is that if you go into this uh, survival situation you've fallen off the side of the boat through whatever mechanism and you are now in the water do you have any experience of being in the water in that fashion if you don't then it's going to be all new and that's going to be very hard for you to uh, make good judgment calls and to suddenly develop the skills that you may need to to aid your survival if you've done training where you've been in the water in the kind of clothing that you wear on deck then you're going to have a feeling like okay the boots have got to come off or the boats stay on or i need to tighten down all of my uh, cuff and ankle straps and uh, you know maybe i need to look at how i can squeeze air out of the legs of my salopettes because i know that these ones trap air very easily because i keep the waist tight all this kind of stuff you need to already know it before you go in so you have some kind of plan that you can execute so um, yeah, training in the gear that you wear and knowing what to do with it is absolutely essential right down to, um, you know, how your uh, waterproofs are going to react when you go into the water wearing them. Um, as it says, if, if possible, get as much of your body out of the water as you can. If a life raft is not available, climb onto the semi-submerged boat or anything that's floating. That's again just because if you are immersed in water, you're losing heat so much more quickly. It's the crux, of course, of the argument that at the end of the film Titanic, uh, Jack probably could have got up on that that door a little bit with uh, with uh, Kate Winslet. As we said last time, um, I think she was just she kind of done with him. It was the end of the show. It didn't look like there was going to be a sequel. So uh, she just uh, she, she took the option. She took the door. <laughs> um, let me have a see. Uh, hypothermic casualties must be handled with care. Now, this is very important. And we're going to be talking about this a little bit later on in the book. Um, it's believed that a casualty may have aspirated even a small amount of seawater. You've got to seek medical advice. So you've got a hypothermic um, individual who's been in the water for X amount of time. They may have aspirated water, taken seawater down into their lungs. You've got someone who needs to be dealt with very, very gently. 
and they need to get to medical care as quickly as possible. Those two things may be in opposition to each other and you're going to have to make some good decisions uh, with what you've got available as to what happens to this person next if you're lucky enough to, to get them out of the water. The heat escape lessening position, position, oh, position posture, it says here. So I know it as the heat escape loss preventing position, but here it's the heat escape lessening posture. Okay, fine, that, that's good by me, no problem. A static body position reduces heat loss and increases your survival time. Therefore, adopting the help position is strongly recommended. However, holding this position will not be possible unless wearing a life jacket, and even then may be difficult to maintain in anything other than relatively calm conditions. So I know from my training that the heat escape lessening posture, as they put it here, is basically trying to tuck your legs up and um, and then like hold a bubble of warm uh, water in front of you about the size of a basketball that doesn't move around. You bring your arms in, put them up against the side of your knees, bring your knees up. The problem I've always had with that is it seems it's basically impossible to hold that position um, unless you're going to like somehow put your face in the water, which is very hard with a life jacket on. You've got to like bring your knees up, but then, you know, it's it's not magic just because you're in water. Your legs still have got some uh, desire to hang straight below you. So you're forever holding your legs up in this position, which can make you very fatigued very quickly. So if you can get... Um, you know, get your arms around your legs and hold them up that way, like interlock your fingers. You've got to do whatever you can do to try and keep water next to you. But if you can, just staying as still as possible so it doesn't get pumped and flow out of your clothing may be all you've got. But if you have an option, as it says, if it's flat, calm conditions, you can maybe try and bring your knees up a little bit and uh, create a bubble of warm water in front of you. Your body has heated up. But as you can imagine, as your body gets cooler and cooler, its ability to make this warm water around, it gets less and less. So you need to start to implement this as, as soon as possible. Um, in wind and waves, your legs act like a sea anchor and your body will turn to face the waves. That's a great piece of advice. So your legs will act as a sea anchor and your body will turn to face the waves. This will cause water and spray to break continually in your face. The natural reaction is to stabilize your position and use your arms and legs to turn yourself so that the back of your head faces the waves. This will happen every few seconds and any gain from trying to adopt the help position will be lost as your movement flushes away the water that you are trying to warm close to your body. A spray hood helps protect the face from the spray and the waves when both conscious and unconscious and is highly recommended. Okay, let's have a breakdown there. So that's a great piece of advice that your legs act as a sea anchor, turning you around and then making it so that the waves are just slapping into your face. So if you don't have a spray hood on your life jacket and you go anywhere sailing that has waves and there's any possibility of you going into the water, this is what's going to happen. If you don't have the spray hood on, you're going to be turned around so that your face on into the waves and then any advantage that you can get of warming water around you is going to be lost when you have to lose the help a uh, heat escape lessening posture go into a swimming mode turn yourself around again and then get back into the help position so if you can be very very certain of one thing make sure you've got that spray hood on your life jacket it's not just for ocean life jackets um if you are on some kind of lake where there are never waves well then it's lucky for you that's perfect that's great but if you're on any of the the great lakes in the u.s certainly they have enough uh, size to be able to have the fetch to have decent size uh, waves and if you are in the water um, in a, an emergency situation be prepared to have it all coming straight in your mouth if you haven't got the spray shield on your uh, on your life jacket you should just be able to reach up above you when the life jacket goes off it's always a bit of a mess but in the end you can work out how it goes down over your head 
over the life jacket, secures itself around elastically. And then um, when you're turned around, you just stay in the help uh, position and uh, hopefully you can keep heat in that little bubble of water in front of you. Uh, there's a little section here about swimming with a life jacket. It says avoid swimming if possible since it increases heat loss. As we just said, you lose all that warm water. However, if it's essential, swim on your back. Trying to swim on your front when wearing a life jacket wastes energy. Swimming by kicking your legs loses less body heat than swimming with your arms and may not be as effective. The other thing is that if you have to like swim and you've really got to swim, like there's somebody you've got to save, there's somewhere you've got to go, you've got to be ready for the fact that you may have to deflate your life jacket somewhat, which is why that that valve thing that's on it is called the top-up valve, you know, because you can let air out of it and you can put air back into it. If you have to swim, God help you, back inside the boat for whatever reason, you're going to have to deflate that life jacket entirely, which you do by pressing the valve and getting as much air out as you can and then pressing the valve and practice duck diving down underneath yourself and it will squeeze the air, air very rapidly out of the life jacket. Just release the valve when you get to whatever's the maximum depth you can get to, you know, like two meters. And then when you come back to the surface, you'll have almost no air in that life jacket, which, you know, be very cautious doing that. But if there's some kind of situation where you just have to go and swim properly, uh, deflating the life jacket can be very useful. But that would be an extraordinary situation requiring some kind of uh, athletic uh, ambition, which can only happen on, on your front to, to swim properly or swim through a narrow aperture. As it says, if you are uh, just in a normal situation and you're trying to or you think what the best course of action is is to is to swim towards some kind of life-saving equipment or a life raft or what have you you've got to do it on your back and you've got to weigh up the likelihood of you successfully making it there like is this thing blowing off downwind is this life raft a mile away you're not going to make it in a life jacket uh, certainly all you can do is look to try and move with the wind with the waves and on your back doing either some kind of um what we call an old English backstroke, like both arms wheeling backwards or one then the other, or just keep your arms by your side and skull and use either front core legs or backstroke legs. Backstroke legs is very, uh, sorry, backstroke legs, uh, breaststroke legs, like the frog. Um, breaststroke legs are very, very effective because you can, you know, you can kind of pause a little bit. You can pause a little bit between each stroke, um, but uh, whatever you can do. And then the side crawl is quite useful so you can keep looking uh, behind you and seeing what's coming up and then get back on your back and you can go do that for hours on end it's just it's, it's not very effective um, it you know it, you're quite slow so uh, two options there certainly this slow and very very gentle method of going on your back and then um, if you really have to then you do have to deflate the life jacket and swim properly um, staying together to reach other casualties a life raft or survival craft in the water send a strong swimmer ahead connected to the group by line or swim as a group now that would imply again that our strong swimmer has deflated their life jacket if you've got someone who really has a skill set that um, you know includes like swimming in open water then um, absolutely you know somebody who's mature who understands what they're doing is looking like they're on top of their um, uh, heat uh, loss situation they're on top of their cold shock um, what you don't want is a young buck who says I can make it because um, they, they normally don't. <clears throat> I just keep that short and sweet. They, they just normally don't. Okay, and then you end up doing that kind of uh, centipede thing where everybody grips hold of everybody in front of them. Um, they can grip, grip with their legs, which is quite useful. L grip around the waist of the person that's kind of in front of you. The person at the 
end of the caterpillar is uh, watching what's going on and kind of pulling and directing what's happening. They tend to have a bit more of a, uh, a side crawl kind of position. And you just slowly drag your way, drag your way. You've all done it as training in a swim pool. And uh, if, if you haven't, immediately go and do it. But uh, it's a fun one to do with the kids at the, at the pool or um, at the beach or something and get them used to the fact of how they would all come together, a little muster. Make sure you've got everybody in your family group or your crew group together. You know, it's one of the things that people never go and do. It's a great way to to do something which brings crew together to go and do actual safety training, whether it be with the storm sails or looking at storm cooking or um, going through mayday procedures, all this stuff, which is part of the training that I've been doing for 20 odd years with folks on the water. The um, the reaction is always really, really good. If you start sharing knowledge and teaching people, um, you know, they'll offset quite a bit of sailing to come and actually do proper tuition if you can turn that into going to the pool once in a while and actually seeing what you'd do uh, in the event of having to go into the water um, there are pools of course across North America and across Europe which deal specifically with merchant naval training Um, you can go and do training in those pools uh, get some time with the instructor get some time in the wave pools the cold pools I know they've got those in the UK they've certainly got them here in Halifax and just get some experience of this environment because goodness knows if you go into it unexpectedly with absolutely no training um it's kind of like um failing to failing to prepare it's prepared to fail right and it's going to fail in the most extreme way possible which is that everybody unfortunately perishes um let's have a quick look at these last bits here as we come into the end of the uh, survival in cold water chapter they talk about the the huddle and the two you know the huddling lots of people together wrapping your legs around each other wrapping your bodies around each other um, in, a, in a group huddle you can uh, make a ring of folks and then keep those who are injured in the center L- locking your arms around the back of someone's uh, life jacket you'll find lots of straps and gear there to hold on to um, there's a nice little bit here that i wanted to uh, put into uh, uh, words here um, beware strangers okay uh, it says the will to survive can change a person's behavior an amiable fellow crew member or passenger can change into a desperate, vicious attacker focused purely on their own survival. They become willing to injure or kill for a life jacket or a space in a life raft. Look carefully at anyone who is approaching you or beckoning you to, jo- beckoning you to join them. Their intentions may not be benign. Unbelievable, right? Almost like something out of uh, a 70s disaster movie. I feel like the Poseidon Venture or Airport or something. Look, the, the situation is when I, I did my... Um, it'd be bronze is it bronze medallion or bronze cross or bronze something or other the one for life-saving and when I did my Australian surf life-saving training as well they both made this point very very clearly that people who are absolutely desperate to to survive to to, you know the the will to live is very very strong and they can be in the water with um, absolutely no chance until you turn up when you turn up you do offer the opportunity for rescue but right off at the very beginning, you're floating. And that means they're probably going to want to like get on top of you. It is the most uh, crazy thing to hear these stories, firsthand stories of rescuers who have gone into the water and then been basically drowned or near drowned by the people they went to um, go and rescue. I know certainly in the military, we were taught to, as you approach the person, you then duck dive down underwater, circle around behind the person, come up behind them and push them bodily underwater for a count of three. And then when they come up uh, choking and coughing, um, you then grab them under the chin and take them in tow. And that's supposedly how you meant to go and get someone. <laughs> Might not be quite how you're feeling at the moment when you uh, look across at your lovely crew members and think, I would never need to do that. They'd never 
do anything like that to me well the truth is who knows what happens when someone gets really close to the edge you know I've been in some pretty hairy situations and you see all sorts of different personalities coming to the surface so as the book very wisely points out in this kind of emergency situation where somebody has flotation maybe somebody doesn't you have life rafts you have lifeboats um, people can end up making some very very hard decisions now I would say on the whole everybody you know if you did it like by percentages i think like 95 96 97 percent of people are going to be completely fine just trying to help each other but it's a minority and it's a dangerous minority so you just have to watch out for what people are trying to do and um you know always look after yourself first because if you've got one person in the water who's having an emergency and you go in after them it can then have two people having an emergency in the water can you reach for them can you throw something for them can you row over to them can you can you do anything before you actually put your body between that person and what they feel is their last chance for survival? Because you may find out that um, all they want from you is your life jacket and they're not caring if, uh, if you die in the process of them uh, drowning you to get it. So a bit of a kind of serious uh, note there, but you know, we are not, it is not some story that happens to other folks. All the people that end up in these dire situations at sea were just normal sailors doing their normal thing until something unexpected happened, right? Okay, so we've gotten ourselves now to the end of chapter two, uh, but chapter three, it really kind of flows right into it because it's uh, jackets and buoyancy aids. So the broad range of life jackets, it says, available on the market from stiff, buoyant foam abandonment models. That's just the, the really cheap ones with the blocks of foam in them. Um, and the basic inflatable bladder types that you'll see demonstrated on commercial airliners, um, they are uh, very different from the life jackets which are used by uh, by yachtsmen and women who have the opportunity to go and buy what is now some pretty advanced equipment designed to uh, keep you safe in the event of uh, something happening to the boat or ha something happening to you and you falling off the boat. And it's good to go back through, you know, just the super high standard these jackets are made to. I think what happens oftentimes with a life jacket is you buy it and then um, you kind of treat it very delicately because you don't want to damage it because it was so expensive when you bought it. And then after a while, you get a bit kind of complacent about it and then it's on the floor. And then somehow after a X amount number of years, it looks really old and raggy and you're out buying a new one when it's uh, you know an expensive and important piece of equipment right from the beginning. So in the UK, the Personal Protective Equipment at Work Regulations of 1992, introduced by the Health and Safety Executive, require workers to wear a life jacket when there is a foreseeable risk of drowning when working on or near the water. Commercial fishermen are not required to wear life jackets, but are highly re recommended to do so. Life jackets suitable for commercial fishermen that do not impede them while working are available. I think there, you know, they're talking about fishermen. Um, I think a lot of fishermen would say, look, if I've got a life jacket on, I'm more likely to have some kind of incident because it's going to slow down the way I work. Um... I don't know, like all the military personnel that do anything on the deck of a vessel have to have a life jacket on. You'll see it in all sorts of government and uh, federal stuff in in, uh, in, the, in North America where people that work anywhere near the water have to have a life jacket on. It's really not that complex to have a, a life jacket available, but there is certainly a culture of people who actively work against the concept of having a life jacket. The, in French sailing, they call it like naturaliste, like kind of, you know, if the sea wants to take me, it'll take me. But um, I, I say no to that. I say that's ridiculous. Like it's uh, there's a piece of equipment here that can change your uh, survival uh, chances in cold or even warm water. It can double it, triple it. It can quadruple it. It can keep you alive when you would have died. And it's just a choice to have it on or not have it on. And I think 
trying to be um, childish about it and saying, well, you know, I can't move in the way that I want to move and I can't do the things I want to do and I don't like the weight around my neck and I don't know how it looks. It's like <laughs> you're balancing these against your life. Like it's ridiculous. It's a completely ridiculous argument. So um, let's have a find out uh, what else there is to say about life check. This is from a European point of view, but um, you know, most of it stands true for North America as well. The main thing is that uh, in the European economic area, they have this C E mark on them, which is um, appropriate uh, standards have been uh, tested and applied uh, in the manufacture of the life jacket. And that uh, you do need to be careful that um, the previous CE standards uh, uh, on older life jackets and uh, uh, and buoyancy aids, it may not be up to modern standards. It may have a CE mark, but the standards have changed during time. And if it doesn't have a CE mark at all, then the life jacket, although it may look like it can do everything it should do, it may not have been designed to function in the way that you're expecting it to. It may be made of materials that have degraded by now. So you've got to be very aware of what it is on the uh, European stuff. Um, ISO, uh, well, let's start with here. The ISO standard of 12402 specifies the minimum levels of buoyancy in Newtons. And you can have a 50 buoyancy aid, 100 buoyancy aid, 150 jacket and 275 jacket, life jackets, those. If you're get, having 150 newtons of lift in your uh, buoyancy aid, then it turns into a, a life jacket type uh, uh, ensemble. And of course, if it's mounted on the front of the harnessing system, designed so that it will roll you over, it goes from being some buoyancy aid to being a life jacket. And then at 275 newtons, the big commercial ones for those who are wearing heavy equipment, see um, also life jackets when they roll you over in time. Buoyancy aids um, at 50 newtons and 100 newtons, they may not even be designed in such a way to roll you over in the event of going into the water unconscious. So always be aware of whether you're wearing a buoyancy aid or whether you're wearing a life jacket. The buoyancy aids often are much slimmer if they are inflating ones. They might just allow you more range of motion, but they don't have the features that you need to keep yourself really safe in the event of uh, going into the water unexpectedly. Um, it now gives us a bit of an idea of um, level 50 and level 100 buoyancy aids. And these are basically what we call in any other thing, PFDs. You've got the, the level 50 ones would be something like I would have worn for kayaking. Um, it's basically like a, a waistcoat and it doesn't have a collar around the neck. So it doesn't do any supporting of the head. The level 100 buoyancy aids have got that slightly larger amount of uh, buoyancy, maybe not enough for heavier folks or if you're wearing anything that's large equipment, but it will catch most situations, certainly kayaking, canoeing, that kind of stuff. But it does have a collar, which then gives you extra support. It is not specifically designed to roll you onto your back, but it's most likely it will. And when you're already in the water and on your back, it will support your head very nicely. Uh, once you're up to 150 um kilonewtons or no not kill no, i've got to be careful with this with newtons not kilonewtons i've got to remember i'm not talking about shackles here i'm talking about life jackets um 150 newtons it's approximately to uh 15 kilos of of inflated buoyancy on the front of the jacket so you're going to have a little uh 30 are they 36 grams of co2 cartridges that uh go off and then uh fill up the life jacket that releases about 17 liters uh in volume of co2 which when it discharges into 100 into it sorry 15 liter space then it pumps it up really nice and tight uh, makes it the rigid bladder in front of us that's able to then roll you over and gives you that 15 uh, kilos of lift that you need 15 liters of volume and that should keep you up at the surface if you're wearing uh, heavy gear then you're at the um, level 275 275 newtons of um, 
uh, of buoyancy available. And even if you've got heavy work boots, steel toe cap boots, that kind of thing on, it's still going to keep you on the surface. So um, for life jackets on uh, boats, I think we can be pretty aware of the fact that pretty much everybody's wearing the 150 Newton life jackets. If you're looking at anything from Spinlock or from Crusaver or from Timo or any of those people, it's normally at the 150, but they'll often have 275 available for their commercial clients. The types of inflation, this is something that has changed quite a bit in the last uh, couple of years. I'm glad to see this book is like 100% up to, up to date. You know, back in time, it was always the um, case that you pulled the little uh, string and uh, you would then set off the life jacket. Nice and simple, you pull on the string and a kind of uh, large hypodermic needle essentially uh, goes into the end of the cylinder and discharges the contents of the cylinder, the CO2, into the bladder, and boom, you're done. And then we got the addition where they have this little, um, I think, is it, is it saying here? You know, I think it's paper mache is the stuff that's uh, inside there. Um, some automatic carriage is vomited, yes. Yeah, so somebody told me it was salt. Sometimes it's paper mache, but whatever it is, a little black bobbin normally that screws onto the bottom of the um, firing mechanism for the CO2 system in your life jacket. And uh, when it gets sufficiently wet, then that little bobbin releases a spring, which pushes the hypodermic needle into the end of the gas cylinder, discharging the contents into the bladder. Now, something new has come along in the last couple of years, and I'd be interested to hear if anybody's got any feedback on these. And these are the ones from uh, Hammer. Now, Hammer is the company that makes the hydrostatic releases that we use on life rafts. Um, if you've got a life raft that's permanently fitted to the deck of your boat and you're doing offshore work or in a more kind of commercial situation, you'll know these as a little black, like hockey puck sized thing, little yellow label on the top. And what that does, it has a rope loop that passes through it. And inside the Hammer hydrostatic release is another compacted paper, paper mache, whatever it is, um, little tablet which is holding back a strong knife, which is there to cut that rope loop in the event of the uh, hydrostatic release being submerged to a depth of one atmosphere. So that's 10 meters, 33 feet. So it means that in the event of the boat sinking without the life rafts um, deployed, that the life rafts will travel down underwater with the boat as it sinks until they get to a particular depth, particular pressure. When this hydrostatic release blows, that rope loop is cut. It's a principal part in the restraints holding the life raft on the deck of the boat. The life raft then uses its natural buoyancy because it's not as heavy as water. So it does start to float away from the boat, even though we know life rafts are like dead weights, but it floats up from the boat. And as it floats up, the painter of the life raft is gently pulled out through a port in the side of the case of the life raft. And when it gets to about, I think it's, uh, I think it's 30 meters, 100 feet long, it comes up hard against the uh, activation pin, which is on the larger CO2 cylinder, which is inside the life raft, which then ignites the, uh, or rather uh, <laughs> inflates the life raft. Don't ignite it, that'd be a problem. Um, it inflates the life raft. The life raft then with full buoyancy shoots off to the surface where upon the hydrostatic release has one other element, which is called a breakable loop. It's a red plastic loop at the bottom, which is where the painter should be attached to the life raft that breaks out, releasing the life raft from the boat. So Hamar have been doing this for a long time. They've obviously identified that there is a problem with these automatic inflation life jackets, that if they get too moist over time, and that can just be literally them being in a, and I've seen them going off in wet lockers, obviously on the bow of the boat, but also at the stern of the boat, if they just get what water in the life jacket, bladder and it sits on that compacted paper tablet for too long, off they set. So Hamar have realized, oh, our, um, 
existing technology, this hydrostatic technology can be a solution for this. So what happens with the, the newer hammer style uh, activated or hammer, hammer hydrostatic activation life jackets is that they get 100 mil, just four inches underwater, and there's enough pressure there for the water to enter into the casing and then to uh, dissolve the compacted paper tablet, release the pin, which uh, activates the life jacket and off goes your life jacket. So you go in the water and a couple of seconds after you go into the water, the uh, life jacket goes off, but it's a much more stable system the rest of the time. I have heard a few examples of people being able to like slide into the water off the boat and the thing not going off. So there's something to be said there, but I think any major fall where you're unconscious, you're certainly gonna end up four inches or the activation area of the life jacket's gonna end up four inches under the water and then this thing goes off. I've seen them in, act, in, 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 in use and actually if you have a look on the uh, YouTube channel, on the Mariner YouTube channel, there's a, um, there's a review there of a Vito life jacket from, uh, from Spinlock and that's got a hammer inflation system on it. And they're very, very good. I would say this, they're quite expensive to rearm one of those jackets compared to one of the normal uh, rearm kits, which has got the just the cylinder and the paper bobbin thing in it. Um, you're looking at double or triple what you'd normally pay, but you know, if you don't have an issue with them going off anyway, which a lot of people won't unless they're really out on the front of a, a boat that's plunging its nose under the waves. Um, I think the technology is pretty solid and um, you know, it, we've got to see like how the numbers come back, if they are saving lives, if they are making it cheaper for people to own life jackets so they don't have to rearm them. I gotta say with the boats I work on, because I've got quite high freeboard, the 60 footers are about five foot from the tow rail to the water. The 80 foot is more like six or seven feet to the water. There's not that much water getting onto the deck, certainly not in the kind of racing and voyaging I've been doing where we keep the boat highly throttled back recently. So yeah, we'll see how that, how that goes. So we're coming in towards the end of this uh, chapter here in this book. Um, the next chapter that we're gonna be looking at is all about life uh, rafts. And that's something I think uh, dovetails nicely into um, stuff I've been doing over on the other podcast. So a little plug for that. I have another podcast called Rare Nautical Reads, which is where I read these uh, oldie timey books. I did a bit of a review of one of them recently, and that was the story, of course, of Dr. Alain Bombard, who traveled across the Atlantic for 65 days in a Zodiac inflatable raft, taking no food and no water with him. He had some emergency supplies in a sealed chest, but he never used them. So he effectively set off with nothing and uh, caught all the fish he needed on the way, got moisture from rain, got moisture from the fish, a little bit of salt water, but managed to prove that it was possible for someone to survive for a very protracted period of time in a life raft. So if you haven't heard that already, have a look for Rare Nautical Reads. Uh, we're about five or six books into that now, each book being broken up either into its chapters or into a 20, 25 minute section. So it's something that comes through five days a week. And I have uh, good reports that it's an excellent uh, an excellent uh, partner if you're doing a lot of sanding or vacuum cleaning, which I don't think really says very much for my reading style, but there you go, I'll take it, I'll take whatever. So. Um, the final few pages here in the uh, RYA Sea Survival Handbook relate to the uh, operation and maintenance of life jackets. It's a lot of things which is based on these excellent um, annotations and diagrams which are in this book. I can't uh, underline how uh, excellent this book is. If you've got children coming onto the boat, if you've got uh, young adults who will maybe not listen through 
a uh, a briefing you know put put this somewhere they can reach for it which obviously always means put it somewhere near the toilet and then in the end people get bored enough just make sure they can't take their phones in there and then they'll have to read the books right isn't that the thing with the um the sea survival uh, uh standard uh, documentation you have to put up on the wall of a boat when it's commercially coded. It's like this little um, couple of uh, like little posters, really, which have loads of information about um, how to communicate with aircraft who are trying to rescue you, which flares do what, and how many you should have on the boat, and all these kind of things. It's like these two standard, like B5, or what's that, like half of legal page for the American listeners. Uh, it's a very small little thing, it get, but they're always found on the backs of the toilet doors on commercial vessels because. I guess previous to the phone being a big thing, the thought was that you just go in there and then you just have to look at this thing and learn it. I have lots of memories of exactly what that little poster looks like. I have to dig up what it's called, but it's a it's a standard thing that has to be displayed as safety information in certainly British commercial boats. And um, the back of the toilet door was where it went. I've suddenly <laughs> learned a lot about sailing, sitting on the toilet, uh, reading all these books, which now we share in a bit more dignified format over on Rare Nautical Reads. But the the diagrams take you through. Um, how uh, you should don a life jacket and how you should uh, maintain a life jacket, things you should do every three to six months. Um, and then a few more discussions on the various parts of a life jacket, what it should have. We know that for an ocean life jacket, it's going to have retroflective tape on it. Being able to signal with a light at night, uh, being able to signal with a heliograph in the day is an opportunity to um, be detected at a very long range compared to almost anything else you've got with you, including the light, of course, in your life jacket. Retroflective tape shines the light from a light source directly back in the same direction uh, of, as that light source. So someone's shining a torch at you, the light comes straight back in their eyes and it can be uh, highly useful for finding things in the water at night. But of course, make sure you get your torch out because if you're not flicking a torch around, you can't see the retroflective tape. The other thing that it points out is that um, the life jacket has got the uh, whistle on it, of course. We always joke and say it's for morale building tunes, but it can be something which is heard over other sounds whilst you're out at sea, particularly on a on a quiet day, on a light wind day, and it certainly gives you something to do. It's a morale builder, if if nothing else. The life jackets have to have a, um, a strap that goes between your legs if they're going to be used in ocean wear, and I think that's something we can maybe finish up this chapter on. There's not much else really to discuss before we get to life rafts, but the strap that goes between your legs, I see a lot of people come onto the Spartan Ocean Racing boats, um, and they even if they're taking a Spinlock life jacket, if they're taking a Timo life jacket, immediately they say, oh, it's got these straps, and then they try and un untie them off the life jacket, or unclip them off the life jacket, or tie them up, or get them out of the way, and it's like, why are you doing that? Oh, well, it, you know, it gets in the way. The function of those straps is to be there to stop you falling out of the life jacket in the event of having to be dragged from the ocean in an unconscious uh, situation. If you're unconscious and you can't brace out your upper body, your life jacket represents a chest harness. If you can't put some strength into your back, push your shoulders back and kind of be held in that, um, that harness, it is quite easy for your, you think about taking a jumper or something off a little child. I was just doing it with my son earlier this evening, getting his dirty clothes off before a bath. And you just pull up on the shirt and obviously the arms go up and off comes the shirt. We all know this. It would be the same with your life jacket in the event that someone's trying to get you out of the water by the specific attachment points on your life jacket for being rescued. If that strap's not done up, it's going to be a problem. And I would just add, if those straps end up being left on the floor, getting kicked around, they get a little bit cracked in the buckle or something, it may click together. But in the event of having your weight up against it as you're being rescued from the ocean, 
if it's got any cracks in it, it's quite likely the buckle opens. So another reason to click those together when the life jacket's in storage and to do your very best to look after the life jacket during its entire life, just in case that one time it has to be used. Okay, so the final page here, it's looking at maintenance on the life jacket, as I said. Life jackets, you know, they should be in excellent condition. They shouldn't be moldy. If they're moldy, that means that at some point it's not been looked after, which then raises the question, how else has it not been looked after? Because it's really rather important that that piece of equipment works. We need to make sure that everybody understands don't fold the bladder down inside the life jacket to make some like uh, impression of a military clean and tidy like method of rolling up because you introduce lines which are often refolded when you do your maintenance and that means you do have potential failure points where those lines crisscross each other. The ones where you fold down the top meeting the ones where you fold in the sides. There's a little corner that comes there and a number of pieces of safety training I've been to. I've seen people's life jackets leaking from two points uh, up just kind of at ear level on either side of the bladder as it is up around their neck as they're in the uh, inflated position. And those two holes are created by those lines of folding from the bladders on the side and from the back being brought together. And what people think, of course, is that they are doing a better job of folding up the life jacket. It sits real nice and flat. It's uh, easy, like progressive, like this is how we put our life jackets away after we've done our maintenance. But if you're too organized about it, you actually create a problem. So it wants kind of loosely rolling, folding, kind of flaking up inside the uh, inside the valise of the jacket, inside the cover of the life jacket as much as it can be. And uh, it wants to be not moldy. The cylinder wants to be not rusty. And uh, I think I'll put in here something that's uh, important also, you know, be careful with uh, life jackets that you're wearing all the time on the deck. Make sure, of course, then they're exposed to wear and tear on the stitching of the life jacket, just as you'd have on any kind of harness or other safety gear that you're wearing all the time. The decks of the boat are sandpaper, essentially, of some nature or another. And if you're sitting, leaning against things, lying on things, moving around next to things, you may find there's actual chafe potentially on the life jacket. Um, I can say also don't use the spray hood as an ad hoc kind of uh, spray hood for rainy conditions like some kind of uh, shower cap. I had that with a particular form of life jacket we had on our clipper boat. We had some of our crew members who <laughs> knew that they could just reach behind them into the zip that was slowly forever coming undone on those life jackets we had on that trip and just reach in and kind of pull the spray shield over their heads if it started to rain too much. Um, it's not to be used in that way. But, you know, <clears throat> it looked pretty good while they were doing it, and it was a solution. But, uh, yeah, other than that, the spray shield's meant to stay inside. And I guess for me, the one thing which I can remember having the biggest issue with on life jackets, which actually is a, a life-saving thing, which I'll bring in here at the end as my final tip on this section of the book. Um, the cylinders, when they get wound into those um, sockets where they, you know, the, the automatic activator is and the manual activator is, the UML5 is the one that I know the best your little gray or black thing that you screw the cylinder into. When the cylinder goes into it, it needs to be tight, like tight like a tiger. You can't do this thing that some people think you should do with carabiners where you tighten it up and then come half a turn back. It wants to be tight. And the reason for that is that when you do activate the life jacket, there's gonna be a lot of pressure coming out of the end of that um, CO2 cylinder, which is attempting to get into this crushed up bladder which is wrapped around your neck and um, secured with zippers or, or whatever it is that's securing it, Velcro. It's gonna be a moment where that pressure is very high and it kind of can't make its way into the bladder, but we know of course that in the end, pneumatic pressure is gonna push that bladder out of the containing uh, elements of the valise and it's gonna pump up to full size. But the pressure that the cylinder has to apply 
to make that inflation happen is probably greater than you're expecting and can overpower the threads of the um, the little uh, screw-in section if you are not careful about it. I've seen this on one particular life jacket brand, which I'll, I'll leave the name of it out of the conversation here, but it was a particular life jacket brand and um, it was around 2010 that I was wearing this life jacket brand. For those that know my backstory, they'll be able to guess where I was and may even know what was the brand of the life jacket. But to the point that I complained to the manufacturer and said, these life jackets are faulty. They're not going off properly. They're not inflating properly. Uh, we had got some reports from all different parts around the world with other life jackets that had something similar where only one side of the life jacket inflates, which remember, in the event of you being unconscious in the water, that means that you're no longer turned face up. That means you're now turned onto your side. And uh, the life jacket manufacturer very wisely came back and said, please check the tension or rather the, the force that has been applied to the CO2 cartridge when it goes into the life jacket because it must be tight. Otherwise, basically, you're not maintaining the life jacket properly. And from going from having life jackets where I think we did 10 or 20 tests and about half of them did not inflate properly, all of them inflated properly once we have got the cylinder completely in and tight. Because you're winding it in thinking this is a metal cylinder. Okay, it's quite a soft metal, but it's a metal cylinder and it's a plastic thread. So this should be like wound in like not too tight, right? Well, that's not quite true. Don't, you know, get Arnold Schwarzenegger about it, but it needs to be like tight, like that's in there. Um, because otherwise that pressure comes right back up the thread and you don't get full inflation. It blows off the pressure instead through the thread and then you've only got half a life jacket. So if nothing else, it shouldn't be moldy because that proves you don't know, you know, you're not maintaining it properly. It shouldn't be folded down inside. There's no components of it should be used in anything other than emergency. It should be checked very regularly. We know that every voyage really, Certainly every month it wants to be pumped up and left pumped up for a little while so that you can see that it's uh, well, pumped up, blown up, sorry. But um, it should be inflated so that you know that it's not going down. It doesn't have a leak, that the light's working. Check the whistle if you like. The strap is not damaged or anything between your legs. But that one thing, making sure that that cylinder is done up, very, very important. Very, very important because, of course, once you have got an issue, if you are conscious and you start to then blow the life jacket up, you may find that you have an ongoing <clears throat> Pardon me. you have an ongoing leak which you can't find because it's coming out through the threads of the inflation cylinder so I hope there's something in all that that's uh, useful to you a little bit quicker today but I want to get into the life raft section of this I think it's one of those things that you do a bit of training on life rafts and then we think we got it kind of covered I'm really inspired by reading that book by Alain Bombard to discuss life rafts I've always seen them as being like a really shonky choice you know in the event that the ocean has taken the boat the thing that you went out on the ocean thinking this is going to keep me safe now the ocean's taken that through something you've done or something the ocean's done or whatever it is i always thought man getting the life raft is really not an option it's a little inflatable boat i grew up through the period of time where people are still reeling from the fastnet disaster and then we had the sydney hobart disaster that's what gives me an idea of what happens in the event that boat goes down that's why i'm so fiercely independent when i'm out there but um Life rafts, I think, is going to be something which we can build in a little bit, this extra information from Dr. Alain Bombard, which was, I don't know, it seems to be like kind of a little bit hidden. I'm really interested to have a discussion. Maybe I was thinking, actually, we might um, end up uh, calling in someone who's a bit more of an expert on this and uh, having a chit-chat about life rafts and the research of Alain Bombard and getting a modern um, physiology kind of lesson on uh, whether what he did going 65 days across the Atlantic is possible 
where, or whether it's just some uh, aberration to uh, the general data where, you know, he, he survived it for X, Y, Z reasons, but no one else could. But um, that's all going to be in the life raft discussion. It's a very expensive piece of equipment, which um, we have to have on the boat. Um, well, <laughs> unless, of course, you have full ocean life jackets with the double-ended uh, tethers on them and your AIS beacon inside, and maybe you've got the extra pouch with your EPIRB inside, and then you can very easily have a $1,500 or $1,600 life jacket on, uh, which then when you've got eight or nine of those on a boat does kind of contend with the cost of the life raft. So that's all ahead. Um, if you haven't already, please consider going over to Patreon and uh, putting in a few coppers there to support the podcast. All of these things come to you absolutely free, and that's how we want to keep it. But we do have to keep the lights on as well. So that's over at patreon.com forward slash the mariner. That's just $5 a month. We've got five of the rare nautical reads episodes going out each week. And we're looking to get the mariner settled into some kind of schedule around twice a week. We've also got all the stuff going on over on the YouTube channel. There's a big dump of videos coming to the YouTube channel soon because I'm doing the uh, video now, releasing the video of my voyage single-handed from Southampton in the UK up to Iceland, up to Reykjavik um, on the 85-footer, sailing that solo, and then sailing from Reykjavik down to Newfoundland with a crew, and then Newfoundland down to Nova Scotia solo again. So lots of videos coming there at the Mariner on YouTube. So go over and remember to subscribe and ring the bell if you do. We're trying to grow the YouTube channel, and that uh, means really got to see those fingers. We want to see you clicking on those buttons for subscribe and the bell, and then we can hopefully get that information to more and more people. But uh, I hope there's something in there for you. And just to recap, this is the RYA Sea Survival Handbook written by Keith Colwell, available from the RYA and I'm sure reasonably priced. It is a fantastic tome to have on board and uh, we're very lucky to be able to go through it in this way and just open up what they're saying here and share it to those who may not have the time to, to get into this but still want to be as safe as possible on the boat. Good. Well, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, sanding, hoovering, whatever it is, I hope that you are safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.